Hey everyone, we've opened the show talking about it before, and we've also talked about it on social media, but we have teamed up with the Kentucky Derby Museum to bring you their Bourbon Legend series on this podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity for us to partner with them and bring all this content to the official podcast of Bourbon. I can tell you, it's a much better experience in person, so you have to get tickets. And for the past few episodes, we've been telling you, go buy your tickets online for the next Legend series that'll be taking place on April 20th. Well, guess what? All the tickets have been sold out. And this is the last Legend series for this season, but we're gonna be sure to let you know who's on deck for the next season so you can get your tickets early. This episode will feature Tom Bullitt of the Bullitt Distilling Company being interviewed by Fred Minnick. There were some hiccups early on, so we missed a few of the first minutes, part of the beginning of this, so this is really just kind of jump right into it. And remember, this is a listener-supported podcast, so your sponsorships go a long way in keeping this podcast alive. Please consider being a sponsor and donate as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash bourbon pursuit. Enjoy this week's episode. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000 Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. So if, if uh, uh, 
while the family recipe is passed down, no bullet touches whiskey until, uh, or is involved in the whiskey business until you. Is that correct? I'm sorry. There was no other bullet descendants um, touching you know, in the whiskey business? No extended relatives, but not, not direct in the line. I have aunts and uncles. I have, has, well, it's a typical Kentuckian. How many of you all from Kentucky? In, in Kentucky, um, should I say this? I'm a Kentuckian. You can ask us if we are related, but it is impolite to ask how, which is typical of a lot of states, as a matter of fact. And for instance, in Bardstown, we have our Bardstown family come to come up for Christmas every year and just counting the siblings and our grandchildren and our grandchildren were up to 87 people. So I'm related to a lot of people in Bardstown and of course a lot of them have been all sorts of and all sorts of. And you're related to some of the, the distilling families as well. Yeah. Well, what, who, are, who all are you related to? In the in the business, are we are going to be truthful? Like yeah. I don't. I thought we weren't going to ask questions like that. But, uh, <laughs> we won't. We won't speak of the degree very possibly. Right. Well, the Willets certainly. My mm -hmm. cousin Dick Heaton married Alice Jane Willett. Alice Jane Willett ran Mal Kentucky home for a long time. I was mm -hmm. just telling you a story about that. Yep. Probably one of the reasons. Uh, uh, my f first cousin Dick Heaton has been mayor of Bardstown. And my first cousin Bobby was was the judge down there. And, Probably that, the Bixlers, if you go back one line, uh -huh. yeah. if you go back one line to the Bixlers, they're historic people that you would know about. Yeah. So you start, um, you have a, a very successful uh, legal career. Uh, tell us about your time as, as a professional attorney. Well, I, I did have had a, had a nice legal career. I enjoyed being a lawyer. Being it's such a pain to get to be one. I guess the best way to maybe I'll describe the route to get there. It'd be more fun than what it was like to look at papers and write contracts all day. You could you wouldn't believe how much fun that was. And actually, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't really exciting. It wouldn't be something really exciting to talk about. When I when I finished my undergraduate work at the University of Kentucky. My father went to the University of Notre Dame, was like a major egghead, and, and uh, he, I came back after some years at U of K, and, and he said, Tom, your undergraduate work has been abysmal. And I was, was so abysmal, I did not know what the word meant, and said, thanks, Dad. <laughs> and and he, uh, he said, I said, I wanna, be, I wanna be a master distillery. I've been working between school terms. I would like to work out here at the Burnham Distillery where we made I.W. Harper and J.W. Dant back then. I said, I would really wanna go into the distilling business. Our, we've got a family recipe and I, half our Bardstown relatives are doing this and that or one thing or another in it. And he said, well, Tom, you will, you're going to be going in the military like everyone else. Dad was a disabled Second World War veteran, far and away the best man I've ever known in my life. He said, you will be going in the military like everyone else, and, and you'll be a lawyer. I thought, well, this is going to be pretty tricky there. And so I looked into being an officer, and of course, abysmal grades does not attract the officership people that decide on that. So I went out here to the Navy Reserve and said, well, I'll join the Navy Reserve. And they said, okay, Tom, what, what do you want to be? You want to be an electrician? And I majored in English and minored in history. I had an engineering friend say, we, like, we speak English, Tom. It was not exactly like that. 
but majored in English, so I didn't know anything about, have those skills. And they said, well, you want to be a bosun's mate. A bosun's mate knows how to run a ship, knows everything about a ship, including all the knots it takes to do ships and, and sail. I'm making that up because I'm not a bosun's mate. And, and I said, well, I don't, I don't know about that. Say, well, well, how about you can be a, a, a medic, a corpsman? I said, what? I don't know, maybe you could do that. He said, well, I said, what's that like? He said, well, you work in the hospital with the nurses. And I said, well, I presume the nurses would be like grown-up sorority girls. I said, how good is this? This, this is, you know, this is a military, I had no idea. So I finished signing my name and he said, son, you are in the United States Marine Corps now. So I'd, I'd neglected to consider the fact that the Marine Corps is part of the Navy. I don't know if you all know that. I did not at the time and they draw all of their chaplains and all of their medical facility from the Navy. So I went to Great Lakes to learn how to be a corpsman, uh, Camp Lejeune to be, learn how to be a field medic, and then went with the 1st Marine Division in Vietnam. And then, took, this is not a short answer either. That's fine. And then I remembered my father said, now you're gonna go to law school. So we're in Fubai or some little place north Danang and I went to the gunnery sergeant and I said, Gunny, I, I want to take the LSAT down in Danang. I have no idea how I knew they were giving it or whatever, but I did. And he said, what the blank? I just like forget about it, it can mean anything. But in this particular instance, he said, it meant get out of my face, corporal, I don't talk to anybody under sergeant, sergeant. Yeah. And, and, and I said, okay, but now you wouldn't believe how smart gunnery sergeants can get when they have a couple of beers. <laughs> Amazing. Same question, same answer, but it meant yes. So, so he got garnered this enthusiasm for my legal career. He got me a Jeep, a driver, and me and the machine gunner, and we went down Highway 1, and I took the LSAT exam to get in law school. And I passed. And so my advice to any of you all, you all look a little bit older, you're probably not going to law school now, but to the extent that your prodigy does, my advice to them was, well, one of the things I did when I got there, you'd take off your, your or pistol and you, or you put, your, put your weapon down there on the table and you take the test. So I laid my pistol down on the table. And I, so my advice to be, if, you know, like, like if you've got kids who are gonna take the LSAT, tell them to take a pistol, it worked for me. <laughs> It's relatively unlikely in today's society, isn't it? Well, I'm looking out at the audience and it looks like people uh, need a drink. I so think they uh, do need a drink. Uh, let's, let's go to the, the, the first uh, tasting. Now, we'll talk more about this, but you uh, just now started your own, uh, you, you have your own distillery now. It we just, do. You just launched, uh, you just had the grand opening last week. We do. And in, until then, or you've been acquiring stocks from elsewhere. Can you tell us where the, where the current bottling for, for the regular bullet is right now? Well, well, the bottling, of course, is Kevin is over at Stitzel or all the bottling over The whiskey at inside the bottle. I caught you on that. These lawyers. The lawyer. I caught you on that. We've, we've contracted for our spirits, as everybody, everybody knows. That's probably the most poorly kept. But our contracts say we're not supposed to tell where it's from. I guess you could go, you go on the Google. I mentioned the Google, which is on the line. And you could go on that and it'll pop right up there, but we're really not supposed well, to for, say Well, I know you had a first, Four Roses contract for a long time. Right. 
For initially, we, I was when in 1987, Bill Goldring, there are two families in, in the business now, and most of the rest of us are affiliated with big companies. Max Shapira and his family at Heaven Hill are independent, and Bill Goldring down in New Orleans at Sazerac and Magnolia Corporation, a variety of corporations are independent. He distilled for me between 1987 and 1996 or so, and then when we partnered with Seagram's, my chief skill is falling uphill. Uh, we, we fell uphill into a partnership with Seagram's and, and then we moved our still, we moved our distilling to their facility in Lawrenceburg and then their facility for our rye up in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Mm -hmm. And so in every, in, with every juncture, you gave them a recipe and they contract stilled, or you? No, it, and initially when, when I was sourcing the liquid from, and I don't think anymore that's around anywhere. If you see it, buy it. It's an old square bottle. It says bullet. It'd be very valuable, not because of me or anything, just because it doesn't, almost doesn't exist out there. Yeah. And that, that was made under pretty much a general recipe that, that uh, Bill, that, that Bill, Bill mm -hmm. was making for me. Uh, um, and, and then when we got together with Seagram's, we could start we could start distilling our recipe, which is the two-thirds corn, one-third rye. And then, and then in 2001, uh, Fred knows these, this history better than I do. In 2001, 2002, I think the approvals went through for, for Pernod Ricard and Diageo to buy Seagram's. Yep. So this, uh, what, what is the age range right now on the, on the bullet? That this is, well, it's going to be about five to seven now. He drank his. I was going to take you through a tasting. I can't believe it. Well, these, we've this all done tastings together, right? Who hasn't done a tasting with me before? Just one? Yeah. So this is how it goes. You look at the, first you want to look at the color. Right? You know, look at the color, very important. The darker it is, the longer it's been on the barrel. And then you want to uh, swirl it around and nose it. When you nose the bourbon, you want to smell with your mouth open, help cycle it out, and you're not picking up just the alcohol fumes. Uh, and when you taste, you want to fill it all over your palate. And Fred No likes to say to do the Kentucky Chew, which is to go, I don't know about you, Tom, but I've never been able to pull that off in public. Right. You know, it just, Fred knows much cooler than I am and he can yeah, pull it off. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's just a basic, that's kind of how we flow. We do a tasting, we talk. Yeah, yeah. yeah we do no, a tasting, that's true. we talk. And, and then to the extent that you didn't drink at all, like Fred did, yeah. if you've got a little water there, I love to add, I've never talked to a master distiller any place, so I'm sure you haven't either, Fred, that they didn't say that water is to whiskey as oxygen is to wine really opens it up. There's actually a molecular change. I don't think I can spell the word molecular or organoleptic analysis, which is what we just did. There's a molecular change. So it's really so different. I think particularly our orange label, the one you tasted first, is that the orange label, the one we tasted first? Yes. The one that says bullet, that mm -hmm. is just bullet, bullet. And then, and then I think there's such a dramatic, to me, to me, uh, Dad and I would drink bourbon on the rocks, is way most people in Kentucky would grow up drinking bourbon after they're 21, and and uh, but that ice ice has the same effect, obviously. Let it melt a little bit, 
and it is a huge change to me. I think it's much more approachable. I think it's more flavorful. But the bourbon really opens it up. With scotch, and you can, these are the, the American whiskeys or high-proof whiskeys, so you can, you don't have to do just a little. You can cut it back a third if you want to. So let's go back to the, Should I go on? the different facilities. <laughs> Let's go to the different facilities. Um, when you go from facility to facility to facility, did you notice um, a, a change in quality, or did you notice a, um, you know, an inconsistency or, or anything like that with your whiskey? I, th I think we in Kentucky, and, and gosh, we, you, all, you all Kentuckians know that we're really proud of our whiskeys, and we're proud of all of them. I think when we go out, when we're out on the road at Whiskey Fest and I run into Jimmy Russell or Bill Samuels or Elmer T. Lee or some of the giants we've lost here recently. We're all really good friends. I have great respect for their whiskeys. I don't think there would be, certainly as far as quality goes, there may be, a, there, there's going to be a different, if you change the mash bill, it's obviously going to be a different style of whiskey. But I've never noticed, I think, for instance, when we were, in, when we were with uh, Bill Goldring's uh, shop over there, they make great whiskeys. It's now Buffalo Trace, then it was Leestown, Ancient Age, Leestown, now Buffalo Trace. They make definitive whiskeys there, yeah. certainly. And, and, then, and then we've always, uh, I think every place we've been, there's going to be a subtle change when you change the recipe. So when you started in 1987, um, you know, that was not necessarily a good time in bourbon. The only really positive market that was going on was Japan. And a lot of people were focusing on uh, Japan and Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, why in the world did you make the decision to start a brand in probably the, one of the worst times in, in bourbon history? Well, I think, I think uh, what's the quote? Uh, from uh, Teddy Roosevelt, do do Teddy Roosevelt, do what you can with what you have where you are, which I think is a great quote. You know, it's been a little tricky for me to be an astronaut. I don't. I'm 38 years old now and 6'2", and I'm not in the shape that I was. So I so I never would qualify to be somebody like that. Obviously, I didn't qualify to be an electrician in the Navy. So you kind of, but I did grow up in the industry. I knew, but uh, the relatives, for instance, I think the first heated discussion I ever heard was a debate in the Bardstown Thanksgiving table between uh, one, two of my relatives, one in supply, one in marketing, about about the, the fact that the cork machine didn't work right and he wished, wished we could find a better one. I say heated discussion, right? <laughs> Just, that's what we'll call that. What was the question? So you could, it, it was. It was basically. Is that the answer? <laughs> it was. I passed the LSAT. I, I said that. <laughs> and the bar. And you tried some cases before the Supreme Court. No, gotcha. the Kentucky Supreme Court. No, no. All right. Well, I got that wrong. No, no. I was a green eyeshade lawyer. I didn't. I didn't. I don't know where the courthouse is. <laughs> you were a tax attorney. Yeah. Yeah. I got something right. Yeah. One for three on your law career. I didn't career. practice much time. You don't talk much about your law career. That's, what, what, uh, was, what was the question? I was basically, why did, you, why did you start when, you know, when there was really at a time when business people I would say, I, Well, I wanted to do it. No I wanted problem. to do I always wanted to do it. 
and, and literally went back to my father and said, you know, I really want to do this. And you would go back to, in that era, you would have had my son. I said to my son, you're going to be a lawyer. He said, I've got a guitar and I'm going to Nashville. You know, I don't, big deal. But you did what your dad said. So I went back and asked him and he said, well, that's between you and your banker, which was a yes from him and a no for money. So, so it's something I always, I always wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I enjoyed like? law, law. I enjoyed practicing law. I came back. I was an abysmal undergraduate. I went to University of Louisville Law School here, and I was a notes editor on the law review. I was quite a good law student, and then went from there to I, I did a graduate degree in tax law at Georgetown. Got an LLM at tax law at Georgetown. All on the GI Bill. I can believe 54 months on the GI Bill. Is that amazing? Mm -hmm. It's great. And your mm -hmm. your strategy. Um, for bourbon was much different than most people's. You really put a lot of focus on the bartender. Was that something that you did early on or is that something that you learned um, as you progressed? Well, it's how we didn't have any money. Uh, so, so if you don't have <laughs> So any, you, you focused on the bartender because you didn't have any money. Yeah, we didn't, no, we couldn't. You, you advertise, most brands, I don't have an MBA, but an MBA person or a business person will say, you build brands with advertising, either print, outdoor, radio, television, whatever, that, that's what a brand is, you advertise. That's why you have advertising, marketing, and stuff like that, and we didn't have any money to do that. So, but I did remember I had a meeting in 1991 with John Magliocco, the Magliocco family, yeah. which is, you know, Peerless Distributing, which mm -hmm. is now merged with, it's now Empire Spirits, and John, he went to the University of Pennsylvania, and I knew a fellow, the network guy, and, and at the time, I, he said to me, when I said, will you distribute our bourbon here in Metro New York? And he had like 17,000 accounts, it would have been a bonanza. And, I, and he said, no. And I, and I said, well, uh, and he said, but I will tell you this, Tom. He said, the bartenders are the captains of our industry and, and brands are built on premises. I may have been the only person in America that didn't know that at the time. But I took him at his word, and of course, I could go bar to bar, I could talk to, I could work with salesmen, our on-trade salesmen. So Bullet really has been built on-premises, which is kind of, I am told, that would be represent a subtle, in, in this industry maybe, a unique case for an, in an MBA program because of the difference. Uh, I, I think that that approach has been enhanced by our cocktail culture, Bullet with the high rye whiskey mm -hmm. has become a cult brand with the bartenders and our cocktail culture, you will notice. For instance, on Bardstown, they have three great mixologists and they're, I mean, that's a very small town. Here, of course, you have lots of wonderful, wonderful bartenders and mixologists. But that is, that is a cult, that has been a real cultural change it's like uh, fine food or whatever, when the chefs became famous, some in my lifetime, it wouldn't be just somebody's restaurant. Remember, Hassenauer's was here. Ed Hassenauer owned the restaurant. You didn't know who the chef was. You didn't care. He cooked your steak. Good. It's done or it's not. And now you have, now you have famous bartenders and you have famous, uh, famous chefs. The other thing is social media. All of those people know each other. So if somebody and somebody, and I'll never forget, I walked out of... Uh, Walked out of what, what is the great what is the great bar and restaurant in Charleston? It sounds like uh, a husk. Exactly. Is a husk? See, we made this interactive. Yeah. Husk. It's a it's a it's a great bar and restaurant. They win all sorts of big prizes. I was talking to the bartender. This was sometime. Walked out of there, 
and, and within, I didn't get 10 feet from the front door, and he yelled, said, Tom, come back. John said, hello. He said, put on the Facebook baby or, or something or an Instagram, and it had gone to, jo John was in Portland, Oregon. And boom, like that, tell Tom hello. So, so it was really an amazing way that you can spider out in those among people of common interests. Yeah, but even before social media, you were really focusing on the bartender. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you were, uh, and your totally. and your daughter Hollis. Daughter Hollis is really active. We would go to Tales of the Cocktail. Have you know any heard of Tales of the Cocktail? It's really a great event in New Orleans in what July. 23rd yes. to 2022. If you wanted to sweat to death, it's a great time to go. It's, it's a beautiful time in New Orleans, yeah. New Orleans, and you can swim around town. It's it's uh, a little humid. The tales the cocktail when it start you ten or twelve years ago. We've gone every year. Both of us have gone every year. I think uh, I've not gone every year, but with uh, maybe two hundred people last year. I'm going to guess they had maybe twenty thousand bartenders yeah. from every place in the world. So it's a great for brands to go and Hollis, our daughter, I'll brag on Hollis, who is an egghead like dad, uh, an artist. She, she, um, she was in, 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 well, inducted, I guess they indict us into the Distillers Hall of Fame, but inducted into the, into the Dames Hall of Fame. Yeah, the Dames Hall of Fame. Yeah, tells the cocktail. So your focus has always been on the you know, from a strategy standpoint, you were always focusing on the bartender and it really paid off for you. So when you came out with uh, the 10 year old, which is the next item on our tasting, uh, I won't lead you through a tasting like I did last time, this will stay in conversation. But when you came out with, uh, you know, the 10 year old, um, you kind of walked into a little bit of a different market. You were going from, you know, the cocktail shaker to the Glencairn or the sipping glass and you were, you kind of changed focus a little bit there. Is this, uh, was, was, was that by design or is this something that you always wanted to do or? Well, what we have done, we, we've had such, we call them our partners in chemistry. We have amazing partners with, with the bartending community and mutual respect for one another. And for instance, on our rye, when very, very specifically, I was in the San Francisco market, the Bay Area, where we have a great market, and and I, I was working with the whiskey a long time ago, and they said, Tom, you all have got a big footprint in rye with your heavy rye bourbon. Why don't you make us a full rye? We think that's going to come on, and in fact, obviously it has. So we listened to them, and just at their direct request, went went into the rye business. Excuse me, as you point out, I ate all of Fred's eggs earlier, so it's, my stomach is a little iffy. He did. He so, ate all my eggs. Yeah. Typical the, Marine. I was going to eat some of his cheese, too. A typical Army guy. It was for him, not us. I stole it. <laughs> so so with, with regard to the tin, it is a little bit different proposition. The tin, if we would taste the tin, again, maybe a little water, but the tin is kind of more, more of a sipping whiskey. Certainly, it's 10, 11, and 12-year-old whiskey. You state the youngest whiskey, obviously, on the label. That's one of the, one of the rules. It is the same mash bill. It varies subtly in proof, I am told, but certainly we did not make this call. It's 91.2 proof that there is a sweet spot in age and proof, and that was Andrew Mackay made that. I think he has an infinitely better palate than I do. Made, made that decision. But it's been a... I love our tin. I think it's great whiskey. I, I, I would may I may think about relaunching that. I think it doesn't get the attention that I'd yeah. like to see it get. 
So uh, around the time that the 10-year-old came out, uh, Diageo, uh, who owns Bullet, uh, launched the Orphan Barrel series, and they had all these different uh, whiskeys of various ages, and um, I tasted those, and my first thought was, why didn't they let Tom Bullet have these for his brand, uh, it, whether in you know the, for blending purposes or for more uh, age-stated releases? Did you try to get those older stocks? Did you have a say in that? I mean, how did that? How no. did that escape your grasp? How did no, those barrels? No. <laughs> Would you have liked to have had those? No. Why not? I, should I should I elaborate? Maybe I should elaborate. Yeah, I'll no, keep asking. Diageo wanted wanted. I, th I think wanted. We we were seeing the craft movement come along, and Diageo, our our partner, wanted to wanted to participate in that. And they had stocks. And you probably know more about this than I do. Oh, I'm sure you do. And they had stocks there at Stitzel Weller. Uh, that, that had been, and, and then probably stocks that were brought in from Bernheim, too. Oh, yeah. That, mm -hmm. So, so Stitzel Weller, and because the, Bern, the Stitzel Weller would have been weeded whiskey only, wouldn't it? And then probably stocks brought over from Bernheim that they owned for a while. And uh, probably just a, a smidgen from uh, Glenmore from when they purchased that in the yeah. 90s. So, so they had a variety of older whiskeys, and they decided, well, the craft movement's coming out, and most of the time the craft movement, sometimes they're selling white whiskeys and stuff like that. And they said, well, we can come out with really old specialty products, which is their Orphan brand series. And they're great products. They they would have been off recipe with us, but but I we we have uh, in addition to having a a, a great rapport with the, with the on premises, uh, our on premises and off premises salespeople and our bartenders, we we have worked uh, diligently through the years with with what we call family trips. We bring our distributors in. As a matter of fact. They're over at Stitzel Weller tonight, and I will go and say goodbye to them. They come in for three days, and we entertain them. So we've established an amazing report. We have 1,000, 2,000 friends that are salesmen with our different distributors. And what, what I want to keep, our sort of promise, like I'm, they, it kind of comes back to two things. What flavored whiskeys may be great, but that we won't do flavored whiskeys. And You're I'll, not going to do a, a cinnamon-flavored uh, bullet? Mar marshmallow, marshmallow uh, cream. I'm, I'm, no, I'm gonna let that one go. That may be a great no. idea, but I'm gonna let that one be your idea. We, we we make straight whiskeys really for the bartenders to use. As a matter of fact, when we get to one of these, we'll talk about what we did instead of go forward. We went backwards. Mm -hmm. So so I think in, out of respect for those salesmen, I want to I want to have a controlled portfolio. We have four marks now. And, and so when they go in, and they can now say when they're on their sales calls, and say, well, would you like to buy, they have a lot of big, a lot of products, a lot of innovation in our business. But people will say, gosh, yeah, I'll take a case of bullet, that's great. So, and then they can proceed with their pitch on something they may be trying to get in. So I didn't want to proliferate the, 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 our, our things under bullet. And, and really, what I, do you think I, of the I, was never, I was never much asked, and, I, and that yeah. would have been my position on that. I, th they, I, they, they're, I think they're extraordinary whiskeys. They're interesting whiskeys. Uh, older, obviously. It's hard as the Dickens to get our whiskey to age out like that, as you know, and everybody was. And they're bottled in Tennessee. I think they're, bo they're bottled in Tennessee, right? The only thing we bottle up that, that uh, we bottle there, Pauline bottles over at. Uh, 
over at Stitzel is bullet. That, that all of our bottle okay. there's all sizes, everything is bottled there now. So if they came to you and they said, uh, it, before they did the orphan barrel, they no, said. He's not gonna let this go. No. Um, they have a 15 year old, uh, let's say it's Stitzel Weller whiskey. Right. And they say, Tom, we would like to put your label on it. You still wouldn't have taken it? Probably, we would, we would have talked about mash bill. We'll come back to, to, back to the mash bill. I like that we've stayed on point with our mash bill through, through the three marks we have on it. And of course the rye mash bill is the rye mash bill. So you feel but, like uh, having dipped, into, dipped, in, dipped your toe into a, a weeded bourbon that would throw off kind of your I your think so. Profile. I think when our, our son Tucker may be coming into the business and, and maybe Hollis, they, they may want to do something like that. But I think in my generation, we sort of make, make what we make. Okay. When did uh, your relationship with, with Diageo begin and, and how has that went? Well, we, well, we, we came in in 1997, we, I fell uphill and we partnered through, through just networking, knowing friends and, and through my law practice and people I represented, uh, got together with Seagram's, Joseph E. Seagram's and Sons, which was a wonderful company. And and uh, we I was I was with they were good friends with the gold ring the Broffman family were the dominant shareholders in that it was a public company I don't think anybody ever mentioned that to the Broffmans because they just did whatever they damn well pleased and and uh, and they were good friends with the gold ring family so we were had contracts and stuff down at Lee's Town Company and they said well we want to want want to get together with Tom on this brand they were coming Seagram's was coming back into the They'd sold their bourbon brands, so so we got together with them, and it was just it was it was an amazing partnership. We were able to work with people like Art Peterson, who would who was their master blender, uh, which is kind of like a master distiller, except from every place he knew as much about whiskey as anybody. He could take almost any whiskey, put it in his hands. Have you seen people like that? Rub them, takes the alcohol out of it, smell it. And he could tell you what the whiskey was and what was in it. And I do that, it just smells like lunch. <laughs> so need, needless to say, I didn't have his job. So, so, and then just some amazing people to get together and, and implement our family recipe. And, and, and then we, we had it, do you remember, you've seen the old square bottle I was using. Yep. And when we got together with Seagram's, uh, um, after we got together, Art, Art Shapiro in New York said, uh, Tom, we are Joseph E. Seagram's and we don't, a little bit like I'm Chevy Chase and you're not, we, we, we don't field products. It was an open mold and glass mold that I was bringing the glass in from England and, and we were bottling it there at least down. And he said, we, we'll, we'll have to design the glass. We'll have to design new glass for this. And I said, yeah, I said who, who, like, who would pay for that? And they said, so, well, we'll pay for it. I said, Let's get that glass, how good is that? Perfect. So we proceeded to an, an enormously sophisticated pro project, brought in Steve Sandstrom, who I think you've met, uh -huh. and, and uh, who's a genius industrial designer, and his, his charge was, we want to see the whiskey, we don't want it not to look like something else, we've got a bottle around here somewhere, and, and refract the heritage of the brand. That bottle would have looked a little like a bottle, it would have been round probably, when Augustus was selling his bourbon, it's the old medicine bottle look, glass works in Ohio. Yeah, this was this was on Deadwood, yeah. and they had that. What, what did you think of that scene where they were holding up the 20th century or the the 21st century bottle, 
in the uh, mid-1800s HBO show? Well, I like Deadwood. I was in the Marine Corps, so I think they took most of the narrative directly out of the Marine Corps. (laughs) The narrative, it's a little rough for the ladies. But but if you get through that, it was a brilliantly produced show, and the art direction, oh, great show. The art direction yeah. was outstanding. In the second season, the the art director called up and said, "We we want to put this because it looks like it's supposed to look like. We want to put this in in the in the series." And I said, "Oh boy, that'd be great." I said, "I said I don't I don't have any money at all for that." And he they said, "They didn't charge you." And they... he said, "Well, we we'll just put it in there." I said, yeah. And it was a very exceptional placement. I mean, the guy was holding it up at a rally, and yeah. it was so you didn't pay for that. No, no, I didn't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> when when you partnered with Diageo, did they did they buy you, or did you did you retain ownership Di- of, Di- of the brand? Diageo, what we have as I, are a lawyer, as I mentioned. Yep. So, so I brought those skills. As a matter of fact, uh, at the front end of starting the business, I did all the intellectual property work. I did the contract work to do, and, and now, of course, when we got when we transitioned to Diageo, I had lawyers obviously work for us. I don't a good idea to represent yourself. And then the same thing happened when we transitioned between between Seagrams and Diageo, mm-hmm. and and all of those contracts are obviously confidential. But the family retains and a partnership with okay. them, which we're we're delighted with. They're great partners. As a matter of fact. I, when you when you get to when you get together and I practice law as a small we had 14 lawyers Bullock Kincaid Irvin and Reinhardt and and then so I, I was really used to small businesses our business before we got together with Seagrams was a small business but both Seagrams and and which was a family oriented company and Diageo of course is a like the eighth largest manufacturer company in Great Britain or something like that, or 11th, yeah, really huge. big companies, and you would think, well, how, how do they interact with the families? So what we were talking with Ted Bassett was that talking to Bill Samuels about how do you uh-huh. all, how do you all, why do they want you? Why do these big companies want you was a question that Ted asked. Bill Samuels and I both, Bill Samuels, Maker's Mark, and, and we answered it poorly, and he, he drilled us and drilled us till we got a more better answer. But, but I think, I, I will say our association with Diageo has been marvelous. I had colon cancer in 2005 and, and had, gosh, it looked like a lab rat, was in a hospital for, for, for a month at least that year, had, took, had chemotherapy, had tolerated very poorly, got a C. diff infection, I was a mess. But somebody said to me early on, you should, you're either gonna die or not, you're not have much control over that. But work, Tom. If you sit at home, feel sorry for yourself. You just sit at home. He said, "Work." So I must have looked awful. But Diageo configured my my work around around that year, and and sometimes you just sometimes. So if you all have ever had, well, everybody's touched cancer's touched everybody one way or the other. And sometimes you take a shower, and that's a heroic day. And then sometimes I was able to to work and to get on the road and do stuff. And I credit that substantially with 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 getting better. You're the only American whiskey. Um, that was a little off point. That they have He's really. Us back. Uh, from when you, when they were United Distillers and Distillers uh, Limited before, they just never appreciated American whiskey. But you're the only American whiskey brand that they have really put uh, their a lot of heart and soul into it. So whatever you've done there with a company that's very Scotch-centric and, mm-hmm. you know, kudos. It's a, good, it's, a, it's a good company, good people, and they know whiskey. 
Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus Magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. So you, you put something on, on your label uh, when, I, when I first saw this, uh, you know, 10 years ago or whenever it was, I got into the uh, government, uh, my little government cheat sheet of what the whiskey labels were, and I could not find a definition for this. What is frontier whiskey? That's uh, Title 28, subsection 2, Romanet 3, <laughs> Title A, subset A, frontier whiskey. It are Tom's whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Frontier whiskey, when we were, kind of comes back to when we, when we got, when I was Arthur Shapiro, who was the senior vice president, he said, oh, we liked the whiskey, we liked the name, we think the recipe's really great, we're going to rebuild the glass. And he looked at me and he said, what is the concept? And I said, Arthur, what is a concept? And had, had no idea whatsoever, and that's sort of the marketing, what, what is this? about Jack Daniels. While we probably couldn't describe it, you would know exactly what the, you've yeah. seen the black and white ads for years, and that evolves out of a concept, a very narrowly defined concept. I said, I don't, I don't have a clue. So I went back and talked to my friend, John Burnback, um, whose son was Bill Burnback, the father of modern advertising. And he said, we, we just had a couple of guys retire from DDB, Dole Damon Burnback, which was the original Mad Men. As a matter of fact, the show is obviously a very loose characterization of that. They were the advertising firm maybe between 1956 and 1972. And Bob Mako, and so I got, got Bob Mako and Jack Mariucci, who were co-art directors, to come come to Kentucky and to work with me, and, and, and they, I sent them my library, which would include your books now. Then it was about seven books, and they read, read, 
or the social history of bourbon that we, we all can yeah, pull out. Gerald Carlson. Pull out. You may be able to get online. Fred bought all the copies, I think. And, and so they, <laughs> they read that, did a bunch of research, and he said, well, your recipe's coming out of the time when Kentucky was the frontier. So we like that. Frontier whiskey has sort of a nice feel. And, and now that has evolved in, into feeling into kind of other things. I kind of like it. Obviously, so you frontier whiskey will stay on the label? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's let's move to the rye, you know, which was uh, one of Don Draper's uh, favorites. Speaking of Madman. Oh, that's very good. Uh, you uh, this rye, rye you launched rye in 2011. Yes. 2011, and um, you you guys automatically became the largest customer of of, of the LDI or MGP, the Lawrenceburg, Indiana distillery there. How much rye are you purchasing from, from them? Just exactly the right amount. <laughs> we've, had, we've had them lay down a lot of rye for a long time. Uh, he's, he's mentioning the fact that Bullet, Bullet has, and it, I don't know if it was immediately, but it, it was, Bullet, has, has, Bullet rye has become, maybe it has a 50% market share or something, has a very substantial market share at this point. Yep. And, and I think I, I would blame that on they make a superior product. They make a superior product. I think it's one of the, maybe the best. And, and, and we were going to continue with those contracts up there. We won't distill the rye. You won't Shelby. distill rye at the new, uh, the new distillery? The new distillery. That would be all bourbon there. We won't distill the rye. We love our contracts with them. It's a great still. Uh, and, 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 and I think one of the aspects I had, young Sam Burchett, who works for us, who's out, out with our folks, our Metro New York salesman over at Stitzel now, I asked him when he was like 22, I said, what do you, what do you like? What's the best thing about Bullet? He looked at the price. Yeah. I thought that was very insightful. I think we way overperform at the price point. And both the bourbon and the rye, you can afford to buy them. The on-trade, the premises, the bartenders, or the restaurants can afford to buy the products and still make their margins. It's a good, it's overperformed, good quality, and a little bit different with, with the heavy rye recipes. Do you find that um, when you came out with the with the rye, you started seeing more rye cocktails? Because that was really when I mean the rye boom was kind of it, it kind of started in 2007, but it wasn't until your rye came out that it really took off, uh, and that was largely because of your strategy with the with the bartenders. I mean, they were making so many rye cocktails between 2011 and you know even today so the last six years it's been and a today, rye frenzy I, I think part part of the part of our our uh, real quick growth with the rye nothing seems very quick to me at this age but but it, <laughs> it, uh, I thought for instance 30 years ago when I founded the company it would take about as long as law school it was not the case so I, I think one of the things when, when we went out with our salespeople went out to sell the rye and particularly in the Bay Area, Metro New York, these New Chicago, New Orleans, these areas where they have where they already had a great bartending culture, yeah. and and the cocktail culture was really coming on. It was they said we well, we love your bourbon, but we almost asked for that put the rye in. So it got a great distribution very quickly with the on trade, and I think what was because of the hard won credibility that we'd earned with the bourbon. Okay. So the bourbon helped open the door to uh, for the rye. Now, rye's flavor profile is traditionally not this 
high in rye. So that distillery created such a unique uh, flavor profile that a lot of the consumers thought that's what rye was supposed to taste like. But now we're starting to see Pennsylvania rye make a little bit of a comeback. There's a lot more Kentucky rye being laid down. It's, it's a very different tasting product. So do you, do you foresee um, uh, the rye whiskey growth continuing or, or is that, does that have a little bit more plateau potential? I think, well, well as, as a category, it's relatively small. Very small. Yeah, so as a category, so, so I, see, I see it growing. I see it growing primarily with the cocktail culture, and I think there's a lot of runway left with the cocktail culture, mm-hmm. and uh, domestically and internationally, being with a, a partner with Diageo is, is wonderful in that I've always thought when I wrote the first business plan, I went to a library and I looked up, do you know, do you know what a library is? Like you have to give the books back. I went to I went to a library and, and wrote wrote a business plan, and a big part of that was was international. I think our international market can be really can be bigger than the domestic ultimately for our American whiskeys, yeah. and I think there's a lot of runway left on the ride. We're, we've launched in 60 countries now, and around in Western Europe. I'll be in Western Europe and I've been around Asia, but but the bartending culture that has taken place here in the U.S. and Great Britain and Germany, and there's some hotbeds of it, uh, and where, where else you would, you would not, Australia a little bit, but that's a very different market. Uh, I, I think we, there's a lot of runway, and the rye is very popular. For instance, when we're launching our bourbons, they, they, we, do, we do usually launch the rye at the same time in the international market. You know, a lot of people will, um they will have two different brands for, for their rye. They'll have a different brand name for their rye than they will their bourbon. Did you consider that with Bullet, or did you want to you, you wanted to keep the Bullet name? No, I think we wanted to keep the Bullet name. Everybody did for the, that exact reason: good credibility with the Bullet bourbon, a Bullet rye, and I think rather ingeniously that nobody thought of, I guess, that we fell uphill into, particularly if, if, if you get one of the on-trade or a bar or a restaurant behind on your back bar to line up the, the sort of the banner of bullet bourbon, bullet rye, and bullet tin, then you've got a, a, a nice sort of family back there that draws your, really draws your eye to it. No, it was, it was always going to be under. And at the new distillery, uh, tell us Tell us about it. What's the size of the still? Give us all that good information. How big is it? How much output is it going to be putting out? How much whiskey is it going to be making? I just read that in the newspaper. <laughs> Wasn't that amazing? They put it in the newspaper. I couldn't believe it. In Lexington on the front page. People, I mean, people in terms of the, the local mainstream people caring about those types of facts? Yeah. 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 Well, I think that, I think that, was, that was really interesting. Well, we, we have Vendome here in Herod. You all know the Vendome here and, and makes the stills right here yeah. in Louisville, which is a wonderful company. Makes everybody's stills, I think, I guess. Do. 95% of the Yeah, a lot of stills. We had Vendome build the still, which I think is 54 feet high. What is it, 48 inches in circumference? It's a big, big still, substantial still. Um, the uh, and and I think we what did, what did we say we're 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 looking at maybe 180, 1.8 million proof gallons per year, uh, coming out of that still. But it was built built to be able to expand pretty readily, which which we may do. We'll we'll see about that. Ultimately, there'll probably be 12 warehouses up there, 
Um, I'm really proud of, of, of our partnership with Shelby County. We looked around, mm -hmm. obviously, at different places in Kentucky. We I certainly wanted to make the bourbon here in Kentucky. And I think Pietro said he looked at uh, one of the SVP and supplies that he looked at 88 different sites from helicopters and cars and ever imaginable way to get around Kentucky. And when he saw the, the 300 acres we have in Shelby County, he said, this is, this is it. I walked, I said, knew that's exactly what it is. So he acquired a 300 acre property in Shelby County that is surrounded on three sides with Guest Creek Lake, which is the water resource. It's got a great limestone water, water resource that's the, the reservoir for, for Shelbyville and the county. And, and uh, we, we've been, been, I think, enormous assistance to them in the integrity of white water and all sorts of things. We've, we've when will it be? Part. When will people be able to visit it? Because it's not open for tours, right? No, it's not. We, we've just finished. We've just started distilling a couple months ago, seriously. And, it, and we, we hopefully may, we may have a we may have a visitor center there in due course, that which would really be nice. There, it just became a wet county. It just became a wet yeah. county, right? Yeah, but you can still, um, you still have the bullet Stitzel Weller experience. Will that change now that you have your own distillery? Or will you have, will that be like a bullet, will you maintain the bullet outposts in Louisville? Well, I, I think those, those things are all under consideration. Kevin, who we, we've just talked to, introduced us earlier, would, would know a whole lot more about it. I think at this point, the proposition to the extent that we have a visitor center, the proposition might be to maintain both because it's the extraordinary historic significance. Yeah. We have something called the Bullet Bourbon Experience, which I invite you all to come outside in Shively at the Stitzel Weller. This is an amazing historic facility opened on Derby Day in 1935. It's when people come out, I think, usually when people visit, well, when they visit our industry, that's one thing, but a lot of times when they visit the, the, visit the beverage alcohol industry, particularly the craft beer industry, you'll have a, you have a, 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 a the, the brewery, which is right there, maybe with a pub right, right next to it, and, and then you come out and see these, the old-fashioned American industrial America, I think there's 17 warehouses, 17 of the old-fashioned nine-story warehouses, maybe 108 buildings of one sort or another on 50 or 60 acres. When you see that sort of facility, I think, and, and, it's, and it's really a, a, a great boon to our industry to have people go in. Bourbon Trail's really fun, I think, and, and each experience is a little different. I think yeah. that's one of, the, one of the, it's not like, well, sometimes, for instance, if you've been to Napa, if you're, you know, been anybody been to Napa Valley or out into California? When you go between them, I have, and I know zero about wine, minus zero about wine. But but they, they can tend to be, other than the architecture is extraordinary, and, and if you're a wine aficionado, I'm sure you would really know the differences. But the experiences tend to be sort of the same. I think they're dramatically different here. In yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. I'm very excited to see what uh, you will do at uh, the Bullet Distilling Company. Shall we take a look at the cast strength? And this is a, uh, the cast strength is a, a category that was really just beginning when you started the, uh, uh, in 1987. Right. But, you know, Booker was the first to kind of really try and make that work. Booker's. And yeah. um, Noah's Mill was there and you had, you had a few others. But tell us about the evolution 
of what consumers like, as there's a lot of cash strength products now, but what is the evolution of, of cash strength that you've seen in, in your career? I think ca cash strength is, and, and I speak a lot of times as we were talking, we'll speak pretty much to the on-trade. The bartenders like the cash strength because they can do a lot with it. It doesn't dilute out fast. They can, they can, it's got a very distinct tone, so the bartenders like it, uh, for one thing. But, and, it, and it's also, I think, and, and Booker uh, No was the first one, uh, Fred No's father, who's, who's uh, and, and, uh, and Freddie's uh, grandfather was the first one to bring that to us, which is great whiskey. Uh, the bullet, the bullet cast, bullet barrel strength is this, this probably 119, it's between 119 and 123. Um, but one of the reasons I am interested in it, we'll come back to, our, but to come back to our partnership in chemistry with the bartenders, they, they like cast strength. And when, instead of coming forward with what was our concept, marshmallow, raisin, bourbon, or whatever, instead of doing that, uh, which is probably a good idea, uh, what I want instead of pulling our, our, our product forward or pulling our chemistry, I wanted to pull it back. So, so in, instead of chill filtering, it's unchill filtered like Booker's, wanted to not chill filter it and bring it directly from the barrel and cast strength. And that lets them start their craft earlier in the process. Um, I think they're interesting products. It has a distinct flavor. I was a little concerned that it was going to be very warm, but we use m mostly ethyl alcohol in our in our bourbon, so it, it's 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 less warm in the mouth and the throat than I thought. It's a nice product. We've had a, an extraordinary response. It, we haven't made much of it. I think we made three thousand. We may maybe in the process of making another thousand, but it's. Do you um, are there going to be other products made? At this distillery? Well, they, at in Shelbyville? Mm -hmm. No, we'll make bullet there. Do you have we any? Make, we may make variants of bullet there. We'll mm -hmm. make the variants we have a right. bullet, bullet there, but there won't be other products made there. Do you plan to put an age statement on your uh, on your mainstay product? Probably not. I, I think our bourbons age at age is really an interesting concept that we have battled in Kentucky. The bourbon fellas, as you know, have just battled marketing. Scotches are are, are marketed very heavily on age, 12, 18 year old, 20 old Scotch, and 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 uh, Scotches age not twice as fast, but substantially faster than bourbons. In my lifetime in Kentucky, it's been. Um, and I'm older than dirt this year, so it's been a while, but it, my, my lifetime, it's been maybe 20 below zero Fahrenheit, and what was it a few summers ago, 103 or four. So the huge variance in temperature. If you've ever been to Scotland, you will have noticed that the weather is uniformly dreadful. Uniform <laughs> is what I want to emphasize. It sits in the North Sea, washed by the Gulf Stream, and so the temperature doesn't vary. The variance in temperature is what marries the wood to the liquid. So they take a lot longer. We also use first char. We can only use it once, the barrels one time, and then they go there and they're, they're used. They can color their liquid. We can't. Everything you see is what you get out of the barrel. So, so age uh, was interesting. We, to last year, we, bring, we have something called Camp Runabunk. Which, is, which really isn't much of a camp run amok. We bring 50, 150 bartenders twice a year to Kentucky, four or five of the distilleries do that. And they came in and I asked them, that question comes up, they said, well, 
well, what, 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 are you, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, probably not much, and they like that. And then, and then I, what would you all like to see? I said, you know, I'm kind of a symmetry guy. We've got a bourbon and a tin, and maybe we'd do a, a rye and a 10-year-old or something like that. And they said, it was really interesting. It surprised me, Fred. They said, we trust the distillers in Kentucky to age their bourbons fully and appropriately. These are really sophisticated connoisseurs of, of bourbon and, and people really know the industry. And I said, thank you. And I said, what we would rather have than an age statement, because that doesn't mean anything to us. We would rather see a cast strength ride. Well, I can bring you another audience who would be happy to tell you what an age statement means to them. Well, there's, and, there's a and, well, large body of consumers who would love to see every bottle on, have on an age statement. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason being and is because I, and I understand that, like like Preston and Julie and Van Winkle make beautiful aged bourbons, and I understand that, but I will go I, I will go as far as to say that, but that on our side, on the production side of it, we don't see much significance in it, but to the extent that the consumer does. So this is we will learn to think much of it. That's the bartenders crazy. are fantastic. They're a great audience for you, and you know they have a, an absolute objective, and, and so their objective is much different than what I see in the market of like uh, connoisseurs or those coming up the ranks who just want to taste their members of Bourbon Brotherhood or whoever. They want to compare and contrast, and um, no one. You know, no one knows exactly where all your whiskeys come from. No one knows uh, the exact age of every maker's mark they get. I mean, there's a there's a range. I mean, but is there more five-year-old uh, bourbon in this bottle than there was in the last one? So as consumers, we like comparing and contrasting, and that started developing uh, in, in the wine world. And in the wine world, you pick up a bottle of uh, Cabernet Sauvignon now, you'll see exactly where those grapes were. You'll see the type of fermentation it had. Um, you'll see mm -hmm. the, uh, the blend amounts. Mm -hmm. So the wine community picked up on that and they took advantage of it. Whereas it seems like the American whiskey side are doing just the opposite. Instead of uh, capturing that enthusiasm, there's an effort to, you know, get more products on the shelves uh, with, um, without listening to that particular audience because people are still buying uh, the whiskey. So if you have a chance, and, and the next time you guys dis discuss these sorts of things, um, I would say a lot, of people, a lot of people appreciate that you put a 10-year-old statement on there. And if you put a six-year-old six on that one, I think people would appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... That's just me. I'm no, just yeah. I'm just a curmudgeon. So so you so you would vote for for like a ten year old rye, and the ten year old bourbon is ten, eleven, and twelve. You have to state the youngest, of course. Yeah, of course. that's right. And and uh, and I don't even know. You probably can't say ten, eleven, and twelve. You probably could just say ten. Yeah, you would have to. You, you would have to do ten for it. It's the right. same for every spirits category, right, right. including rum, which violates it. Right. Uh, horribly, but so so you would so you would 
vote for the ten-year-old rye. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because. Well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, and because it, again, it gives me something to compare and contrast. Sure. And I, while I respect everyone's position, and you know, you guys have your well, own whiskeys and companies. Well, but, but as you, as you point out, for instance, you you all tried the bourbon, the, our ten, our bourbon, our our five to seven, six years, six plus year old bourbon, and then you tried the ten, eleven, and twelve, and the difference in in proof is very subtle, but the difference in taste is substantial, isn't it? I wanted it to be different. Yeah. Very, to to your point. So there, there is, and the mash bill is the same. The yeast is the same. What's different is it's substantially 40% older or whatever, and, and creates a different product. Well, See, I'm a lawyer. I can take either side of the case. You, you, you have a great opportunity to, to set an example for the industry by putting age statements on every one of your releases coming forward. Mm. And, you, and I'm so glad you're going to do that. That's awesome. <laughs> As the judges say, I will take that under advice. Yes. <laughs> Well, it's been a great evening. Um, you are the guy who came into the business when people were leaving. And you've built something that no one thought you could. And here you are. You've got the world ahead of you and for your son, Tucker, for your daughter, Hollis. I mean, Bullet Distilling, Distilling Company is in how many countries now? 60? 60. It's amazing. It so surreal. What what is what is the future? What do you what do you want to happen for for bullet distilling in the I, next twenty years? I think it, this, it, this is certainly building a distillery is a life dream. Actually, at this point, it's a little surreal, as you can imagine. And I can very distinctly what I think most often when I look at the distilleries, I cast back into, into what, going into a liquor store and say, "How about you buy a bottle of bullet?" And they say, "How about we don't." Tom, we have just exactly enough bourbon. So, so when it when it evolves like this, it's it's really kind of surreal. I think this is certainly a benchmark. But 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 the, to be, to people tell me life is a journey, and certainly a business, and and something when you have a passion like this is is a journey. I'm I'm really looking forward to our international markets. I'm looking forward to developing in in breadth and depth the domestic market. I think one of the most exciting things is to have have uh, the family come come in. I, I didn't anticipate that that might happen, which 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 may happen. Well, if I may, everyone grab your favorite uh, bullet of the evening. Uh, I personally am going to reward the ten-year-old age statement. <laughs> I, I I see a lot of empty glasses out there. Uh, so we well, you can raise the toast and smell the uh, the remnants of it. But this is to Tom, the Vietnam veteran, the bourbon founder, to Bullet Distilling. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Cheers. 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 And we'll, we'll, we'll clink our glasses oh. here. And then, we'll, and, then we'll, and then we'll do another one to our host, the Derby Museum. I had seen recently here that uh, I came in before you all did. And, and watch the, the film. I'd seen it some years ago, but it is just amazing. If you all haven't come here to the Derby Museum and see this, this film, it is, it is inspirational. I think it's just yeah. a beautiful film with wonderful side, with, with wonderful sound behind it. It's, it's, it's They do a brilliant job here. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, thank you to our host, to our host. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Does uh, we now have time uh, for questions? And by the way, we have a silent auction going on back there. I didn't mention this earlier, 
But we have a silent auction going on for limited edition uh, bottles. Uh, only 1,000 were uh, signed by Tom. And it's, uh, it's in celebration of the new distillery. And it's got a special label on it. So we have four of those tonight. Uh, please go up there and uh, bid on those as you like. But we're welcome to uh, take questions now. If you have any questions, we have one right here. So you got a microphone coming along. Thank you. And that, that is a great question. The, cre the, the question was, how does bourbon differ from the rye? And, and specifically, as we narrow it down a little bit, is the aging process the same? The, the, the big category up here is whiskey. And under whiskey, you're going to have Scotch, Irish, bourbon, Tennessee whiskey, Canadian whiskey, Japanese whiskey. Irish, Scotch, Irish, Mexican Scotch, whiskey. Mexican, so lots of whiskeys. Yeah. Bourbon is one category of that, which is narrowly defined in Title 26. We went back to that, the tax code, because they want to tax it. CFR. And then, and exactly, Code of Federal Regulations. And, and, and rye whiskey is defined there, too. It is a different type of whiskey. For instance, rye whiskey, our bourbon, is, as I mentioned, is two-thirds corn, one-third rye. It has to be 51% corn, and there's other rules that go along with it. The rye has to be 51% rye. And there's other rules that go along with that. They're very similar. We make straight whiskeys to make straight whiskeys. There's other categories called blended whiskey, but our, our bourbon is straight Kentucky bourbon whiskey, so that's very narrowly defined. The rye whiskey over here is straight rye whiskey, and that's also narrowly defined. And with respect to both, we have to use new white oak and we use a number four char. I think most people use a number four char. Bill at Makers uses number three, maybe. But most of us use a number four char. And in both instances, we can only use the barrels once. The, the, the timber industry lobbied that in, so we'd buy more barrels, and we do. And we try to lobby it out, but for the fact that 95% of scotch is aged in these bourbon barrels, yep. arrive, and there's an immediate market for them. So to add to that, uh Rye actually is different uh, in bourbon and that bourbon can never have any coloring uh, or any flavoring added. Whereas if the label does not say straight rye uh, and it just says rye whiskey, uh, then they're allowed to add up to 2% of uh, flavoring. Uh, for example, Templeton, which is a common brand um, that also acquires stocks from Lawrenceburg, Indiana, they add a, a um, proprietary flavoring agent and there's, and the label does not say straight rye, but with bourbon, the, the, there's no additives that can be added. But for rye, if it doesn't say straight, uh, there is a chance that it could have some additives. Geek stuff. Oh, good question. Is Bullet gonna come out with a bonded bourbon? Uh, we did. A bottled and bond? Yeah, our old Bullet thoroughbred when I was with, uh, it's bottled and bond. Oh, really? Yeah. What year was that? That was that came out in 1994, but I that's know. when we were with when we were yeah. with Bill Goldring, and and we haven't and and that's that's always an interesting concept, and and I think in a in a in a nice credibility factor and and uh, probably I would imagine we will as our new just of course our whiskeys that we're making now won't be available for quite some time. But I think probably we, as our whiskeys come out of there, we probably will. Mm, it's, a nice, nice. it's a nice factor. It's a nice. When I was growing up, 
uh, they had a lot of bottling bond in, in the 50s, mm-hmm. in the 40s and the 50s. That was a very, and it, it's an indicator of, of, I think, a, a further indicator of integrity. It's a nice kind of, like straight whiskey we were just talking about. Yeah, it's a good question. Hi, Fred. Hi, Tom. Hi. Uh, so, Tom, uh, congratulations on the opening of the new distillery. So this is kind of a two-parted question. Uh, one, have you named, uh, maybe I've missed it, have you named a new head master distiller? Uh, and then two, did you go through contracting anybody uh, for actually helping you set everything up and actually start the distilling process? Well, gosh, no, we, we've not named a master distiller. We're, we're kind of thinking about that. The way, the way we run the distillery is with, with a team approach. And we're kind of thinking about where we go with that and how we explain that to the industry. We need to, I need to talk to you about that. That it's kind of an interesting proposition. So the answer we haven't is the answer the first, and maybe maybe won't. We'll kind of we'll kind of see how that happens. And and gosh, yes, Dan Feaser was the primary engineer. That we our partner Diageo. Of course, this is this is an immensely complex machine that makes whiskey. It's an agricultural processing facility, is what a distillery really is. But as you can go online and see it, and and we brought in Fleur Corporation, one of the very best people in the world, uh, to to. To, to create, build the distillery and design it, and design the amazing environmental integrity it has. Literally the best people in the world uh, uh, were brought in. But so, through by Diageo. Diageo has built any number of distilleries through the years, uh-huh. and, and medium size and big ones, so they absolutely have, probably has as much expertise in this as anybody in the world or anybody in the world has ever had. So it sounds like they're taking more of a Johnny Walker approach with with uh, the team, the yeah, team kind thing. Yeah, a little versus, bit, kind of, and, and we're, yeah. we're kind of thinking about that at this point. Great question. Yeah, it was. Thank you. No further questions. <laughs> <laughs> See, you know, the educated oh, yeah. audience, they're going to get you. Oh, yeah. Old lawyer. I mean, any more questions? All right. Well, please. Anybody like to come up here and do some public speaking? Yeah. <laughs> it's open. You can do that if you like. And the, you have uh, already pre, pre-signed bottles, right? You yes, signed I some. Have. You signed some yeah. bottles. We have the uh, silent option items up there. Uh, you'll find my uh, one of my books up there. Happy to sign those for you if you'd like. Uh, Hollis is um, your daughter's prominently featured in Whiskey Women. So. Yeah. Um, you well, thank knew, you. You knew that, of course. Thank you. Yeah, but uh, again, Tom. I bought a thousand copies. A thousand and one tonight. Yeah. <laughs> All proceeds go to the Kentucky Derby Museum, Excellent. a nonprofit. Excellent. So, uh, your the uh, silent auction is tax deductible since it is a nonprofit. So. Uh, thank you all so much for, for coming out. We will stick up here to uh, answer any questions. But, Tom, yeah. thanks again. Yeah, Fred, what a thank pleasure. you. Always thank a pleasure. You. Always a pleasure. So thank you all for coming and supporting the museum. Thank you all. That's wonderful. Pretty awesome, right? We thought so as well. Do me a favor. Go to iTunes and write a review for our podcast. It helps go a long way in growing the listenership for the official podcast of Bourbon. And if you like this episode in particular, please send me an email. It's the duo, T-H-E-D-U-O, at bourbonpursuit.com. I want to be able to take this and forward it on to the Kentucky Derby Museum and let them know how much our listeners enjoyed it. Thank you all so much, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>